Thank you for listening to the Trinity Podcast. My name is Marty Reardon, and I'm your host. Here at Trinity recently, we hosted a night we called A Conversation on Sexuality. And we really want to share the audio from that evening with you, because topics like these can often be difficult to discuss for followers of Jesus. But it's our heart, and we believe it's also our call at Trinity, to take seriously the New Testament's vision for spiritual family. Now, the audio from this night is almost two hours long, so we decided to divide the audio into three parts. In part one, this episode, our education pastor, Ashley Matthews, set up the evening by giving an overview of Trinity's theological convictions regarding human sexuality. Now, if you need more than an overview, if you're not familiar with our stance, we would encourage you to listen to a reposted audio from a previous members meeting in which our lead pastor, Chris McDaniel, and Ashley Matthews discuss in greater detail Trinity's convictions around same-sex relationships. Thanks so much for listening. Good evening, everybody. Uh, so good to get to do this um, together. It's one of those nights that makes me uh, very thankful to get to be a part of the church and then maybe this church in particular. I just want to acknowledge from the very beginning that uh, in no universe is this a conversation, <laughs> the way that conversations work in the real world. Like a conversation is never by definition one person talking at 250 people uh, who say nothing in return. So uh, I just want to say that. When we say it's a conversation here is though what we mean is that while we will not be able to have a dialogue uh, back and forth, we certainly, uh, I feel like in some ways this is a representation or the fruit of many conversations that have preceded this moment uh, with some of you in this room. Uh, who I have been able to over the years and more recently get to know and sit with and learn from those of you in this church who are gay and straight and single and married. I have had the opportunity to sit with so many different kinds of people who call this church home. And I am so extraordinarily thankful for those conversations and they have played such a huge part um, in what we'll hear, and I think maybe more importantly, who we are as pastors here. It's true for me. It's also true for Chris, of course. Chris and I have had conversations, um, many, many, many of them over the years. So is our team. I've been having lots of conversations with people I don't even know through their books um, that have become sort of mentors and friends of mine over the years. So I just wanted to call that out. There's a lot going um, on that has informed everything that's going to be said and, and uh, what we do tonight. I also want to call out just initially that um, a topic like this is never meant to be, nor should it be presented as primarily sort of like theoretical or intellectual. Um, this is just a thing that, you know, I have to have, and so is this. But ideally, conversations like this are had, as they have been for years, for Chris and I, um, at tables, face-to-face with people that we love and or hope to love and are getting to know. And so um, when we talk about something like sex, we're talking about people. We're talking about people we know, people we love. Um, this conversation for me is full of faces. Faces I love, people who mean so much to me, people I've known for years and worship the Lord alongside. And um, for you, that's true. We're talking about our kids. We're talking about our brothers and our sisters, our friends. So I just want to say that. Um, anytime we have a conversation like this, no matter the size or the place, it ought to be marked firstly by the tenderness and compassion um, with which Jesus would have it any time in any place he had to talk about it. 
And so my commitment to you is um, to be as honest as I believe I am called by God to be in a place like this. This is befitting of my office and my role in this church. Um, So I have a commitment to you to be honest. I also, we have, as pastors in this church, a commitment to you um, to be humble, to be open, to have ongoing and continued conversations um, from this point going forward, as we have for a number of years. Um, So know that as we we go in. I want to tell you, before we jump into content, a little bit about what it's going to look like. So for those of you who are note-takers and are wondering, dear God, how are we going to sit here for two hours and listen to people talk? Um, without a plan. So here's, here's a plan. Here's what it's gonna, here's what it's gonna look like. Uh, I'm going to talk for the first part of it, and I'm gonna talk about uh, the conflicting stories that we hear about sexuality, um, how our culture thinks about it, and I believe is, um, teaching and forming us to think about it, and how that compares and more importantly contrasts with, uh, what we believe God has to say about human sexuality. So that's how we'll spend our first bit of time together. And then we're gonna transition, we'll take a break. And uh, Peter Valk, who's here from Nashville, is going um, to come and he'll spend about a half hour talking about uh, his experiences with singleness and really his expertise, share that with us about um, what he's learned over the years. And then lastly, I'll be spending some time with uh, Laura Yauk, who is the member of Trinity that Chris named, and she and I will do a kind of interview together. Uh, Laura has been here at Trinity, a faithful member and a single person in our church, and so we're going to hear about her experience uh, with singleness kind of at the end. So that's where we're headed. And I also uh, feel like it's probably important um, to go ahead and just sort of like name the elephant in the room, which Chris sort of alluded to very briefly. For those of you who came um, either maybe hoping (laughs) or fearing that Trinity was going to be making some uh, grand announcement about a change in our position with respect to same-sex relationships in particular, it feels important to just, like, it would, it's the courteous thing to do, and um, to just say from the beginning, that's not what we're doing <laughs> here tonight. Uh, if you don't know Trinity's position when it comes to same-sex relationships, Trinity has what is called or has been classified as a traditionally conservative or side B sort of position with respect to same-sex relationships. And here's what that means. We believe um, that God loves And we love gay people. We believe and we believe that God believes and affirms the significance um, of the lives and the humanity and the experiences of gay people. So we deeply affirm people who are gay. To be side B or have a traditional conservative position on this issue means, however, that what we cannot do is affirm same-sex sexual relationships. So that is our position on this issue. For those of you who've been around Trinity for a number of years, uh, you probably know that because Chris and I, about five years ago, sat um, in this space and had that conversation with our members specifically. We went into detail about how and why um, we land where we land, what we believe the Bible says. And we did some exegetical work here together as, as a Trinity family. We also published a position paper, uh, which we did not really want to do. Um, but feel I'm thankful that we did, um, because position papers and positions, the reason that we felt somewhat reluctant to publish it in the first place, because they're never the most helpful way to have this conversation. Um, and there's just a certain, like, humanity and tone that you cannot ever capture in a position paper. That being said, if you're curious about how we got to where we got, 
um, with respect to that issue, then we want to refer you to that paper. Um, because while our position hasn't changed, y'all, a lot of things have changed. That was five years ago, and um, there are a lot of things about me as a person that um, continue to change. I grow. I learn things. Every conversation I have with someone uh, who's gay or single in this church changes me. And so we're, we're learning things every day and all the time. And while that position may stay the same, there are things that we want certainly to do better and have learned mistakes we've made over the last several years. Um, a couple of them I'll name. Firstly, um, you'll notice now that if you go to our website and look for uh, this paper that I've referred to, which you can find by going to atltrinity.org slash white papers, and you'll see a number of position papers there that we've written. It used to be called On Homosexuality. That's what I named it. I have never to date met a gay person who calls themselves a homosexual. Uh, so we've changed it. And I will just say that is like something that I have learned. Maybe when you're having this conversation, maybe you shouldn't also refer to people as homosexuals. It sounds clinical and impersonal and like maybe you've never met a gay person. So maybe just we don't say it's not that it's bad. It's just, you know, clinical. And so what it's called now is on same-sex relationships. That's just one example. I've, I've learned a lot about the power of words and how we talk to each other and why it matters. Uh, secondly, we made that paper pretty hard to find, and we had it as a members-only meeting. And the reason that we did all of that is because we were trying to honor our commitment to being a church that is comprised of diverse thoughts and opinions, even lifestyles. We want everyone to feel welcomed, loved, known here in this church. And so in an attempt to not lead with what could be a potential, not potential, a certainly divisive point or issue, we kept that conversation among our membership. And we put that paper um, in a proper spot rather than in a, some might argue, easy to find spot on our website. And one of the things that I've learned over the last few years that while there are some advantages to that approach, there are also like significant costs. Namely, that people could um, be here in our church and not know what we think. And that while to some that may be hospitable, to a lot of you it has been inhospitable, confusing, and therefore costly. And if you have been particularly, if you are, you are gay and in this church, and that has been your experience, confusion or lack of clarity on where we stand or, or what to do, then we want to own that and say that we're, like, to those of you who've helped us and bringing that to our attention, thank you for your grace, your grace and your compassion. So we're learning all the time. And tonight has been born out of some of that learning. We want to be more clear so that we can be more helpful and really and truly, therefore, be more hospitable. Does that make, that makes sense, right? Altogether. Okay. So that's sort of why I lead with it. So that we can know where we are. Um, that being said. Um, we're going to move into talking about this this story because um, positions have just, they're not helping. People having them one way or the other is just really not helping the church. Do you know what I mean? What we're doing now just isn't working great for anybody. So deciding a position, having one, however well-informed and whatever side you land on just isn't where the hard work is, really. The hard work is figuring out after you've 
named a position, what are you going to do? What are the implications of that position? How do we now then live our life together? And you having a position or fast-forwarding to every part of the book, um, particularly the Bible. So, like, if the only parts of the Bible that you're really familiar with are those seven verses that mention <laughs> same-sex uh, attraction or sexuality, then that would that would really grieve the heart of God because there's a bigger conversation and a bigger story. And so what I want to do tonight is um, sort of situate our position within the context of that larger story. These resources that um, Marty has rightly thrown up here on the slide are some, um, I'll be naming a number of others. These are not mentioned in our white paper, and I think they are so good. Um, Our white paper is the last bullet. It's called On Same Sex Relationships. You can see there where to find it. These first three things um, are just things that I have, people I've read and listened to that I really love. Uh, This God and Sex Sexuality Series by John Mark Comer and Bridgetown Church in Portland is just incredible. You should listen to it. Um, Holy Sex by Philip Yancey. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Philip Yancey, but do not discount or dismiss this article based on your prior knowledge of Philip Yancey. I will tell you, it will surprise you. Um, it's an incredible Christianity Today piece that he did a number of years ago. And um, this last thing, or the third bullet, is maybe the best talk I've ever heard in my life. And it was given by a woman named Joanna Finnegan at a conference called Revoice in 2019. It's incredible. So those three, those four, we will commend to you. So I want to talk uh, now a little bit about the stories we hear about sex. Sex is good. We like it, or at least some of us used to, (laughs) or some of us think we surely will, maybe more than we really would. (laughs) Sexual brokenness, given our, like, um, seeming cultural obsession with sex, um, One of the things I can guarantee that we all share in this room, regardless of how we would identify, is that we have experienced sexual brokenness probably um, on some form or another. Everybody in this room. Um, So that's like a tie that binds, is that everybody has been in some way or another touched by broken sexuality, whether um, that is because you've been the victim of sexual abuse um, or you've been the child of a divorce out of adultery. I mean, if we were to go around the room, every single one of us could, like, name some way in which we've experienced um, sexual brokenness. And I think that part of this sexual brokenness, I wonder anyway, don't pretend to be an expert, if it doesn't stem from what would appear to be, seems to me sometimes, a rather schizophrenic story um, about sexuality that gets reinforced through our culture like every single day. And I say schizophrenic because um, here it has like two seemingly antithetical sides of the story. One of them, on the one hand, uh, there's a story that says like sex is, it's idolized. It seems to be preeminent. It's everywhere and everyone must have it, you know. Um, and then on the other hand, Sex is treated as if it's sort of casual. Um, It's fluid. And so it can be hard to know. So, like, which is it? Is sex, like, central and everyone must have it? And it's sort of defining or definitive of me as a person. It's core to my identity. Okay? And then on the other hand, it's really not that big of a deal. 
it's just like keep it casual. Just don't make such a big deal about it. It's fluid. It's ever-evolving. And I think it's hard to know sometimes, well, how, like how do you put all those things together? Um, I actually think one of the issues is that the story is, is false in both directions. And that's one of the things that um, has been so helpful to me about having an alternative story to go to when I receive those messages culturally, that my faith has given me a story, that God has something to say about human sexuality, um, and that it defies both of those points, that sex is neither to be idolized because it is not meant to be central, and nor is sex ever, under God's understanding, casual. And so what do we make of, of that? Um, the reason that I think um, it's such a painful narrative to have to sit with pastorally, particularly the sexist casual part, is because um, I, I have the pleasure, the honor of sitting with a lot of people who are really victimized by that narrative. And I think to some degree that's probably true of every one of us in this room. And, you know, every time you go, I mean, good Lord, even commercials anymore, but anything you watch on Netflix or any movie that you go to, you know, there's like a sex quota. Have you noticed now? Like any kind of movie, if it's our show, if it's going to make it, it's not even, ha- it's not even a sexual, just you know, before you know it, somebody's just r- having sex in the corner. It's just like they just had to meet their, their sex quota or taking their clothes off at some really random time. Um, and it's, it's okay. It's like, it's just sex. It's just casual. It's everywhere, but here's the reality: um, that when I sit with people, and even in my own life, um, it's just that's false. Because sex is 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 never just sex. For example, um, if the person you love is having it with someone else, it's not just sex. Then um, it's not uh, just sex if it's your your dad having it with another woman. I don't care what they say or told me. It's very painful. It's not just sex when someone's forcing you to have it and you don't want to. It's not just sex when it's a kid. And so, like, what we know in our bones and through our experience is that that isn't true. And the schizophrenia comes from feeling in our bones one thing and hearing with our ears and seeing with our eyes something else. And it creates a tension and a pain and a hurt that we don't exactly know how to name. Like I very, I just, I want to say to you, I don't, it's false. Sex is a big deal. It's a very big deal. It's not everything. But it is a big deal. And that's because like we're whole people. And it's something that involves my whole person. I'm not just like, you know, this set of random cells strung together by random biological reactions and connections. That's, um, there's more to me than that. So the things I do with this body mean more than that. And it's okay to feel that. Like I sit with women, young women, who are, will tell me with their mouths that, What's happening with them in, in their lives through Tinder and the hookups that they're experiencing? Like, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. The issue is something else. But 
I know that what they want somebody to say is like put a hand on them and say, it's okay that you wish it mattered. It's okay. That you can't feel no matter how hard you try that it's as casual as they tell you it should be. I wish somebody had found me when I was 17 and crying into my pillow. I wish somebody would have come and put a hand on me and said, it's okay that this didn't feel as casual as they said that it would. It's okay that you feel scared. It's a big deal. And there's a way for us to do that and embody that and feel that without judgment, without fear. But we do need to be honest about what it is that we're dealing with, who we are as people. That's the story that I believe God tells about our sexuality. It's rooted in something bigger than the sex. And that's what makes it, for me, um, such a such a powerful story. Um, sex is good. It was designed by a good creator for a good purpose. But I don't believe, and this is one of the things that I've learned, that it is essential for a fulfilled life. And I need to be able to say both of those things as a Christian. That it is important. It matters. It's a big deal. It's also not essential to my flourishing as a human. Jesus did not come to this earth and say, no fear. I have come that they may have sex abundantly. (laughs) Good news. I have the gospel. You may have sex and have it abundantly. As if that were the gospel of God. That is not what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? I came so that they may have life and have it abundantly. And he said that, by the way, as a single and celibate man. And so for me as a Christian, the question is, what is that about? How do I have access to that kind of life? Because what that tells me is that my life, my sexuality, who I am as a person, everything is aimed at something bigger than me. Something beyond me. Something beyond the sex. So I want to talk about our sacred story. Um, before we do, I'll read you this quote. Marty, maybe we have it on the, on the screen. Preston Sprinkle wrote a book called To Be Loved. Um, if you've never read it, it's the, it's the best one I've ever read. Um, so if you're looking for somebody to make that kind of an endorsement, there it is. It's the best one I've ever read. He has done a lot of research, a lot of homework, and more importantly, he has spent a lot of time with gay people and single people. And his compassion and his commitment to be with people and stand with them is evident from page to page. And his scholarship is really good. So it's great. And he says this, I reject the myth that true love and intimacy are only found in a partner you can have sex with, and I despise the modern American lie. That a marital spouse is the quintessential form of happiness, without which no one can experience true fulfillment as a human being. None of this is based on a Christian worldview, which finds its meaning in a single Savior. But it is not enough to reject a cultural narrative. Um, Something I once heard someone say is, no is not a vision. (laughs) And that's so true. Which is back to the position thing. To just say what you're not for 
or what, like it has to be rooted in something. What is the vision? What are we for? What are we about? What are we calling each other towards, pushing each other towards, regardless of maybe where we fall on this issue? So what's our sacred story is the question. So that's what I want to do now. I want to spend a few times talking, or a few minutes talking about um, what the Bible has to say about sexuality. And this is the point in which many of you probably understandably go, oof, the Bible. Why are we even still talking about it? So many people have so many different things to say about the Bible. Arrive at different conclusions. Why does it matter? There's a sociologist, Christian Smith. He's a genius, and he um, actually coined a phrase uh, to uh, name this uh, sort of pervasive fatigue and really a loss of respect that a lot of people have now for interpretations about about the Bible. Um, he calls it pervasive interpretive pluralism, which is how you know he's a sociologist and not maybe somebody you want to hang out with. But <laughs> he's really smart, though. We're glad he writes books. And uh, I think it's true. I think now when it's like, well, I believe this because the Bible says, sort of people immediately Christian or, or not are like, yeah, whatever. Uh, here's what I want to say about that. Um, I not surprisingly have an alternative opinion. I think that what the Bible has to say really matters a lot. But I do also want to say this. Um, it's important to say that for 2,000 years of Christian history, this story that we're about to tell um, has been the story of not just human sexuality, but human history and what we believe about who God is. Sort of that's been like standard orthodoxy for 2,000 years. And to this day, the majority of creedal Christians... Meaning those who affirm things like Trinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, the fall. Creedal Christians, the majority of them, this story is still the story. The consensus among what we would call Orthodox Christians is still this story. So it matters to me to be able to stand in a long line of history and if we're going to depart from it, that we have very, very good reasons for having done so. So what is that story? I suspect that um, if you grew up in the church, maybe the story that you knew about sex sounded something like this. Sex is bad until you get married. And you definitely should. And then sex is your God-given duty. So you better do it a lot. That was my sex education in short. (laughs) And uh, God is good. Nobody said he was fun. That's the subtext of that (laughs) speech. (laughs) And I just, uh, so if that's your story, we're just going to put it over there. And here's here's the real story. Um, Sex is good from the beginning to the end. Sex is good because human bodies are good. Um, this God who I believe actually is portrayed as, um, as, as a good time. He comes onto the scene in the first pages of the Bible and he makes a world out of a mess. And he stands back and he looks at what he's made, particularly humans in their bodies, and he says, that's real, real good. Um, also, we're different in that creation story. 
all creation is really good, but humans sort of stand at the helm of it. Um, the way that we're made, male and female, God feels sort of particularly fond of. There's something distinct even from the very beginning of the story about human sexuality that's distinct from all other forms of sexuality and reproduction. And I'll just, you know, as an aside, if any of you ever, like, really given thought to, like, the amount of time God gave to creation, you know, in general, but also just to making sure that maybe we were on the same page about the fact that he wanted us to have sex in the sense that, like, you know, it, he was not against it. I mean, a lot went into designing your body to reinforce the point. You know what I mean? And there's something really distinct about about human sexuality from, like, the rest of the animal kingdom and the world that God made. So Holy Sex, that um, article that Yancey wrote, he has this to say about the distinctives of human sexuality. He says, uh, the more we learn about human sexuality, the more it differs from the way animals do it. Relationship is the key. Human beings experience sex as personal encounter, not just a biological act. We're the only species that commonly has sex face-to-face, for example, so that partners look at each other. When they mate and have full body contact. Unlike other social animals, humans prefer privacy for the act. At least most of us. In every feature, human sexuality encourages relationships. Humans negotiate a contract between consenting parties. A contract as simple as a marriage vow, paying for an hour of a prostitute's time, or as complicated as a Shakespearean love triangle. Unlike domestic bulls or rams, which service every receptive female within sniffing distance, mating humans demand some sort of mutual consent, mutual consent. So when none exists, we call it rape and we punish it. Um, Yancey's at length trying to make the point, I think in some, that God's trying to tell a story through the way our bodies are made and through our sexuality. That there's something happening that God is trying to get us um, to see. And Christians have always said, therefore, that our bodies are in that way a sacrament. Meaning they make something visible that would otherwise be invisible or remain unseen. And namely, when you look at the human body and you consider human sexuality, what's clear is that we desire communion and connection. That it's maybe core to our identity. The question is communion with what and connection with what. So the Bible tells a story this way. In the very beginning uh, chapters of the Bible, we see the creation of a world and a marriage. Genesis 1 and 2. At the very end of the Bible, the final chapters of the Bible, again, new creation and a marriage. So here's what happens at the end of the Bible. The heavens... Are seen in Revelation 22, coming down out of the sky. The text says, like a bride adorned for her husband to meet the earth. And this is the culmination of human history. This is the moment that we've all been waiting for. The marriage of heaven and earth, in other words. And they, they come together like a man and a wife. Like a plug in a socket. Like consummation. In other words, that's the final scene of the Bible, um, beginning and the end. Now, now, why is the question? What is all of um, that about? 
I think the Bible is trying to tell us um, that ourselves, our bodies, this world, that we, of course, were made for communion with God. That ultimately, our story, this history, is aimed at something that's bigger than me or my sexuality or you and your sexuality. That history is moving in a particular direction and it's towards consummation. It's towards a meeting with God, communion with God. And what happens both in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 is that when people come together in communion, that they become one flesh. They create this new thing, a new creation, namely other humans. At the end of the Bible, when heaven and earth come together, the same thing happens. It creates a new kind of flesh, a new reality, a new world. And so when we think about our marriages... And the sex that we have within them. Um, Christians have said historically, then what we're doing is we're telling a story. Our marriages are meant to make that big story visible. We can see it playing out. That when one person meets another person and they come together and make one flesh, that flourishing happens. It leads to new life. That that story is telling or referring to pointing beyond itself marriage was never meant to be the end in and of itself it was always meant to point at something particular to point at god and his desire um, for the world now of course there are couples who marry who are not able to have kids but in general marriage has been the institution designed created instituted by god in which human flourishing would happen meaning babies would be born now, that being said, I'll quote again from um, Preston Sprinkle. Maybe we have the other quote up there. Marty. It's a long one. It's good, though. Genesis 1 ripples with a creative display of diversity that complements each other. God and creation, light and darkness, earth and sky, sun and moon, land and sea, humans and animals. And at the pinnacle of God's creation stands the masterpiece of male and female. Creation is not uniform, but a beautiful display of differences interacting with each other. The coming together of male and female in marital and sexual union is the height of creation's astonishing union of otherness. That being said, the Bible is really clear that humans aren't made for marriage or for sex. While they are good and serve a very important purpose, they are clearly meant to point away from themselves. And we see that actually take place in the New Testament. By the time you get to the New Testament and Jesus arrives on the scene, what you see in him is a totally fulfilled human, a perfect human, living out his life as a single and a celibate person. Um, Jesus, one author put it this way, a guy named Bruce Miller, whose book you'll find on our white paper, uh, he's wrote an incredible book called Leading the Church um, in uh, an Age of Sexual Questioning. And he had this to say, he said, In the New Testament, the command to be fruitful and multiply, in Genesis 1, shifted the focus from biological reproduction to spiritual reproduction in Jesus' great commission. So, go be fruitful and multiply, and the New Testament turns into go and make disciples of all nations. We are to multiply and fill the earth with the disciples of Jesus. Now, was Jesus therefore saying that marriage is bad? We don't need it anymore. No. But does it mean that Jesus came, at least in part, to point us towards this example of a life, 
a fulfilled life, an abundant life of human flourishing that existed outside of marriage and sex, that it was, in fact, possible to live an abundant life outside of those things? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Um, Maybe Jesus was preparing us in part, at least for the day, when we would not need marriage and sex anymore. Can you even imagine such a day? Our culture would say no. No. A world without sex or marriage can't be. What would we even do with all of our time? In Matthew 22, somebody comes up and he asks Jesus about the resurrection and what sexuality and marriage will look like in the resurrection. And Jesus says this. In the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels. So, I hate to break it to you, but better now than somewhere else. There'll be no sex in heaven or marriage, for that matter, in heaven. Why? No marriage and no sex in heaven? Because once you've reached the destination, you no longer need the signs. Once you get to where you're going, you don't need signposts telling you how to get there. And I promise you that when you get to heaven, nobody's going to be sitting around wishing that they were somewhere else. Because the longing, the shared longing that we've always had will be fulfilled, met. And that being said, do I believe that for one second Jesus was saying to people, well, you just got to wait till you die? <laughs> no. He wasn't saying that about holiness. He wasn't saying that about the Holy Spirit. And he sure wasn't saying that about sexuality. We have access to the power of God's Spirit to redeem our bodies now and to live into a resurrected life now. Is it as perfect as it will be? No. No, it's not. But is it better than it would be without the Holy Spirit and who Jesus is? I 100% believe so. We have an opportunity as a church, as resurrection people, to mirror something. Married and single. Marriages that push beyond the marriage itself that point towards this good and big story, singleness that is a, not just waiting for marriage, but that points beyond marriage and singleness altogether to this big story that we're telling. I would like to be that kind of place. I would like to have that kind of marriage. So what I want to do now is put these two stories, the secular story and the sacred story, right up next to each other so that you can hear the distinctions and the differences. Um, this bit I've ripped off entirely almost from a guy named John Mark Comer, who is the pastor at Bridgetown Community Church. If you've never listened to him preach, you should. He's incredible. And so he tells the story something like this. This is a secular story. Human beings are really just animals who happen to find themselves at the top of the food chain thanks to a fortunate fluke of evolution. Our anatomy is really just plumbing and our gender is socially constructed. Sex is a purely biological urge, like hunger, and it should, like hunger, be satisfied according to your preferences. Eat when you want to. Eat what you want to. You have sex when you want to, and you have sex however you want to. Marriage is a social contract solidifying a legal alliance that can be dissolved at any time and for any reason. Any authority that would limit or challenge my individual preferences is oppressive and should be overthrown. That's a secular story in short. Sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Sacred story. 
Humans have been created in the image of God, and we are more like God than monkeys. Now, I've got no beef with evolutionary theory, but I'm just saying, there's a bigger difference between me and those monkeys than the way we move our thumbs. You know what I mean? Ain't enough time in the universe because there's something fundamentally different. Namely, that I'm a person possessing God's spirit. It's what makes me human. And the chimpa-chimp is that at some point in human history, God looked at a human and said, you're going to be human and I'm going to make you in my image. And he endowed that human with his spirit. And we became a combination of biology and God's spirit. And that's who we are. Our anatomy has been designed by God. And like every other aspect of creation, it was done so with intention and purpose. And like every other part of creation, it can bear the marks of a broken world. Which means that if your anatomy and the inside, the soulish parts of you, the inside parts, if they don't feel like they match, if your psychology and your physiology don't feel like they align, meaning if your gender as you know it and your body don't match, um, then that kind of a, a situation is deserving of our utmost like attention and compassion love because we're all trying to figure out how we live in a broken world with broken bodies and if you need a resource that I really like and trust Mark A. Yarhouse wrote a book called Understanding Gender Dysphoria it's listed on our white paper I wish we had more time but we don't it's an incredible book you should read it if that's a specific issue for you or someone you know sex is both According to the sacred story, physical and spiritual. It is meant to create physical, relational, and spiritual unions. Therefore, it has parameters, God-given parameters, and boundaries like all other relationships. So we know how to honor one another and we know how to honor God. Marriage is a spiritual and social bond formed between men and women. Reflecting the complementary nature of creation, it's meant to form financial, relational, and spiritual alliances. Therefore, it is a relationship granted by God and dissolved only for very specific reasons, like adultery, abandonment, or abuse. And until straight people get more serious about holding each other accountable about divorce, they, our gay brothers and sisters are never going to hear what we have to say about their sexuality. Until straight people get more serious about holding each other accountable the way we think and engage with divorce, our gay brothers and sisters are never going to hear what we have to say about their sexuality. Marriage is a big deal across the board. Authority is a natural and necessary part of God's design. And my personal preferences must be taken into account with respect to a greater whole and a common good. This story has implications for all of us, married, single, gay, and straight. Um, I think it's good news for all of us. Here are the implications. God intends for sex to be cultivated within the confines of marriage. According to that story, God made marriage for a specific thing, to do something, for a purpose. 
Neither the Bible nor 2,000 years of Christian tradition nor we at Trinity are unclear about this. If you are not married, you should not be having sex. So just let the records show, no matter how many tattoos we have. (laughs) And the music we listen to. We are as conservative as your grandma when it comes to this question. And that's because we think there's more to it than our conservatism. If you are a Christian in this church, we have a responsibility to call you to abstinence if you are not married. And you have a responsibility to ask why. As a Christian, you ought to ask why. Why, Lord, abstinence outside of marriage? And I believe the Lord has an answer to that question. And it goes something like this, because for those of you who will marry, marriage is just a a long string of commitments that you are going to make as a person that will often violate your own personal preferences and desires. It is by necessity something that only exists when people have learned to mutually submit to one another. And I will promise you, you cannot submit to someone if you have not ever firstly learned to submit to God. You won't do it. So we learn firstly to submit to God so that we can submit to each other. We have a we have a paper on this. You'll see it. And in the paper, faithful abstinence is an opportunity to say to the other, by God's grace. And if, you're, if you've got a boyfriend or girlfriend, you just write this down. And next time you go out, you can just say this to them. That'll be cool. <laughs> They'll be into it. By God's grace, I am committing now and for the rest of my life to honoring boundaries that challenge my individual will and autonomy for the sake of our future. Maybe only say this to someone you're engaged to. If you're not engaged, that would be very weird to say to someone. By God's grace, I am committing now and for the rest of my life to honoring boundaries that challenge my individual will and autonomy for the sake of our future. And what God is wanting to do, not just in your marriage, but in the world. I learn to be a person of submission so that I can live in a world that is bigger than me and about more than me and what I want. I will also say this. Nobody told me that sex was going to be the first entity that had to be cultivated, that, that Josh and I would raise as a, a thing that we would create together. Kids are not the first thing you create. Intimacy is the first thing you learn to create. And it has to be cultivated, has to be worked on, has to be learned. They're lying to you. It doesn't happen like it does in the movies. It's a lie. You're, it's, for most of us, you're not going to find yourself in that moment and be like, yes, this is just like HBO said. I look and feel just like they promised I would. You won't, probably. So learn a different story. 
Because if HBO is teaching you and preparing you for that moment, you're going to be disappointed because God owns that moment. He has a story to tell about what it's meant to be. And so that's now is when we learn it. Next point. God's design for Christian marriage. And I say Christian marriage. Civil marriage is another thing. God's design for Christian marriage is male and female. And it's meant to last until death do us part. I say civil marriage is a different thing because I very gladly, thankfully, proudly live in a country in which people are treated equally under the law. I'm thankful that I live in that kind of world and in that kind of country. But as a Christian, the way that I understand marriage is different, particular. If you are here in this church and you are gay, you need to know that you are not just welcomed here, you are wanted here. If you are in this church and you are a Christian, regardless of whether you are gay or straight, married or single, you are family. And that's how we want to live our life together here. Um, That being said, we have as pastors in this church, as humans, as Christian brothers and sisters, a responsibility to you as family to be honest about our convictions It's the only way really healthy relationships work is if you have freedom to be honest about what you think and feel and I have permission to be honest about what I think and feel. So as a Christian, I have a responsibility to be honest. As a pastor, I have a responsibility to call you to something. And in this church, in the same way that we are going to call those of you who are straight and not married to abstinence, we are going to call those of you in this church who are gay to abstain from same-sex sexual relationships. That's our honest conviction before the Lord and our responsibility. It's not just, however, our responsibility to call you into that, to say it. No is not A vision. So what that means is that the greater responsibility is figuring out how we live life together. How we love each other. How we live life together in light of that call. All of us. Not just those of us who are gay. Or those of us who are single. So that being said... Every human being has to have intimacy. I don't believe every human being has to have sex. Every human being has to have intimacy. And on that point, um, we're all in agreement. And it's something that I have learned from those who stand on an affirming side, from those in our church and in my life who are gay. No is not a vision. And loneliness and isolation is a death sentence. It feels that way. Particularly for Christians and in the church. What we're doing currently isn't working. And that's because I think our tendency has been to withhold hope of biological or nuclear family from those who are who are in our churches and who are gay without extending 
the hope and invitation into spiritual family. So you withhold the only imagination that we have culturally for what a fulfilled life looks like without offering something in its place. And if we have a commitment, it is to begin to figure out together what this looks like. What is, what is our vision for life together? If no isn't a vision, what is our yes that we're going to say together as a family? I hope that's not just true Trinity, but of the church. Jesus called the church, this is my last point, to be a spiritual family. Which means married, single, gay, and straight, we're meant to support each other like family as we follow Jesus. And this is not an empty sentiment. I don't just mean, you know, your family. I mean, I think in Matthew 12, when somebody said, hey, Jesus, your family is here. Your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus looked at that person and he said, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he looked at his disciples and he said, these, these are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, those who do the will of my Father in heaven. In other words, this is family. And so what that means is that there are commitments that must be made. That's how family works. We treat friendships in our culture like they're disposable. And like family is forever. And in the church, what we're meant to do with each other is to look at one another and say to people, specific people in your life, not just everybody generally. I believe God has put specific people in your life that you are meant to have committed relationships to, to be family with them because they are Christian. Regardless of whether or not you share biology, you share the blood of Jesus. And I think Jesus gives us a model for what that kind of family looks like. He certainly calls us to consider it. So there are two fundamental shifts that have to be made if we're going to have those kinds of families. One is that we're going to have to elevate the role of singleness in the life of the church. We are going to have to start casting a vision for singleness in our churches that dethrones the idol of marriage. And we want to be a place where that happens. I know people in my life who have done that for me. They are not living a half-life. They are not treated as second-class citizens in this church. They are leaders in the kingdom of heaven, and I believe the heroes of heaven. Secondly, we have to expand our nuclear families to include our single brothers and sisters. We have to... Expand our nuclear families to include our brothers and sisters who are single. That means that there are people in your life right now who are meant to be family that you are not currently probably thinking of as family. And rather than them just existing as that ever sort of like really close friend who comes over sometimes and occasionally joins you for Christmas... What if as a Christian you looked at them and said, because of who Jesus is, we're meant to be family. And so we're going to treat you that way. Our home is your home. And we're going to figure out what that looks like together. The next two people who are going to share know a lot more about this than I do because they're living it out in really faithful ways. 
So what we're going to do is take a five-minute break. And then Peter's going to come and share. And then Laura's going to come and share. And we'll finish out our night together.